it's the TFC Audio Project. So hello everybody, it's Ruth O'Donnell here from the Foot Nerd Program, and we are going to record episode one of the Happiness Podcast. So I have um, my best friend here with me, who's also my partner, Matthew Gervasi. And we are going to talk about the five pillars of health in the Foot Nerd program. Uh, Foot Nerds who embark on the year-long journey of trying to reclaim their own health through studying deeply, sleep, movement, food, mindfulness, and community. Um, we, we unpack each of these subjects and we do a personal experiment in our own life in each of these um, subjects in order to do our, be our own citizen scientist. A citizen scientist is somebody who takes the idea of science and applies a hypothesis to their own life and sees what happens. So the reason why I have Matthew here today is because he has a unique perspective um, on this, these subjects and we talk about it a lot. So I'm getting ready to actually finish the Foot Nerd program and graduate in the next month. And so he, because we live together, um, he helps me work through a lot of the ideas. So happiness has been big on our list lately because I have the opportunity to talk to a lot of foot nerds and people in general about their lives and how they feel and what is healthy and how much sleep they get and is the food they're eating healthy and are they getting enough connection in community and so on and so forth. There seems to be um, some something I'm digging up, which is like the more, I guess what I wanna talk about with Matthew is the idea that health is something that is a, a certain, a, has an elusive quality. And in our program, um, we get at each of these subjects really deeply. Um, but what, what I'm noticing is that sometimes we can um, have such a rigid discipline around these subjects so that we add, we add them into our lives on top of a 70-hour work week or a 50-hour work week or children and caring for animals and cars and homes and stuff that, that it ends up seeming like it's just another responsibility. So I started to ask Matthew questions. And so we wanted to like talk about what it means to be healthy and how that relates to happiness. Um, and so I'm gonna have him introduce himself and then we're gonna go through each of the pillars um, from a, a different kind of lens, I think. He does a lot to help me unpack some of these ideas and and then we'll go from there. And in the process, we're gonna talk about our experiment in radical well-being that started like 15 years ago um, with all of these areas and all of these pillars. So Matthew, would you mind introducing yourself and um, telling us a little bit about who you are and, and why what it's like to be a foot nerd family member <laughs> and then also um, what why you think that the happiness podcast might be valuable. Okay, hello, my name is Matthew. I am originally from California and now I live in Alabama. I teach at a small uh, liberal arts college in Mobile, Alabama. And my background is, uh, as far as work goes, it's uh, focusing on philosophy, literature, culture, mainly uh, Western European thought. So uh, I have a PhD in literature and uh, that's what I get to teach. So I enjoy doing that. I get, I enjoy being able to talk about those things. Um, I enjoy language and I enjoy the relationship of ideas to, you know, the way in which we put them into practice, the types of jobs we have, the ways we decide on how to live our lives, whether we're voting, trying to create a political structure or relationship to where we live. Um, or at the same time, trying to create a, a balance between the mind and the body, as we oftentimes say. And uh, those are things that I'm fortunate enough to be able to kind of study and teach, but then also use those ideas to um, improve my own life and create more balance, create a fuller, happier, um, more fulfilling uh, daily 
experience of uh, embodied uh, play, joy uh, type of just uh, doing and uh, not always focused on having and being able to plan everything out in advance. Um, so that's mainly what I focus on in general in, in regards to my work, in regards to my personal life. And being a foot nerd allows me to kind of hear about these ideas and kind of occasionally I've, I did participate in one uh, Zoom call, but I, I get to overhear a lot of them and I know a lot about the foot nerd community and I like the idea of trying to challenge some of the uh, some of the structures that are in place in regards to how we think about education, we think about um, creating um, ways of uh, finding and appropriating and using the information that we feel is important to us. So I think that uh, I've been able to do that in a lot of ways through the uh, kind of university system. At the same time, I'm uh, ambivalent in a lot of regards about some of the uh, real structural challenges and problems that exist there, but um, that's where I do my work currently, and that's where I kind of uh, steal most of my ideas because I feel like it's um, really an opportunity to see where there's an enormous amount of uh, richness, both in a kind of capitalist system. Um, it, our you know, American universities are extremely well funded, so um, I've always thought of being a little bit someone who can be there and kind of get as much information as I can and bring it into my own life and then bring it into the lives of the, the larger community. So it kind of complicates some of the problems that exist in regards to the university being a type of ivory tower institution, which it is in many ways, I feel, but um, I feel there's a lot of uh, ways in which we can smuggle out some of those ideas and um, put them to pretty um, radical or progressive or interesting or fun, playful ends. Mm -hmm. So, Matthew and I met um, maybe over 20 years ago now, longer. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I, we were very good friends. Matthew spent some time in the Peace Corps when he got back and we began dating. And then subsequently we started a life together. Um, I remembered that like there were certain things that he did, like he would let the water just trickle a tiny little bit or um, would really take care in um, recycling even like paper towels and stuff that were like super uh, really thick paper towels and I just was I couldn't really understand so we started talking a little bit about his experience in the Peace Corps and what it was like being there and how there were this is I'm telling you this Footner community because this was like I think a big awakening for me in the idea of what it means to be my personal idea of what it means to be healthy was what I was watching him take such care in his life. And I didn't understand like why he wasn't turning on the water faucet full throttle or why he wouldn't just throw those paper towels away, even though, you know, they just, they just had water on them or whatever. I was like, well, you know, just go to the store and get more. Um, but when he started to explain to me what it was like there and like how there were no garbage trucks that would come through. So if you made garbage, you had to, be responsible for what you were making. And that just, that blew my mind. I was like, I never thought about not having a garbage man in my life. So I guess where I want to go from here is just talking about like from the beginning, um, we're in the, you know, like we, I'm in the foot nerd program and I'm the director of the foot nerd program. And Matthew is a foot nerd by proxy because he lives it every single day. And, but we, but this journey for us started a long, long time ago. And, um, so I started paying closer attention to like what the, the question popped into my mind, what would it be like to not have somebody pick up my garbage? And I, I think my whole life changed at that moment. And then it's just been a progressive um, path down, down, down a progressive journey down this path. And so I was hoping that what we could do in this um, particular episode is just talk about the overviews of Matthew, wherever you want to go with this, like, starting with sleep and then with food um, and or starting with sleep movement. And then we'll just kind of go through the five pillars um, and whatever you feel like talking about with regards to like your history and your um, ideas on what health is in that regard as it relates to like, and also happiness, like how it relates to happiness and well-being. So let's yeah. start with sleep. Start with sleep. Um, well, I think 
I think sleep is obviously a foundation for health. I think it's something that I've always prioritized. I've, um, I'm not somebody who likes to uh, be super active. I obviously, in order to get through life and to you know get a PhD and to find a job in the world today and do stuff that you have to be very goal-oriented at the same time, I have a pretty good um, kind of lazy peasant mentality or something like that. And I mean that in a positive sense in the way that it's oftentimes perceived by the overly industrious kind of Western mindset, the idea that somebody who's not constantly um, working and improving oneself and doing things um, almost in an ostentatious way, a type of performative uh, excess of sorts. Uh, that's never really interested me. I've always valued the things that can't easily be um, evaluated with metrics, you know, like how is your life getting better because you sleep more, those types of things. I think it's a type of lived experience, a type of qualitative pleasure. I think there's real pleasure in doing those things. And so I, I tend to value sleep and I've always kind of selected jobs and job paths and things like that. I was an athlete when I was younger and I, I've always used that as being a, a kind of guide to, you know, being well rested so I can play and do stuff and I'll, at the same time perform and be competitive and kind of set goals for myself in the athletic sense. And that, you know, kind of bleeds over into the rest of my life. So sleep is the foundation for health in a larger sense. And I think health in just to touch upon that is something that uh, should be conceived as capaciously as possible as having a lot of capacity as having something that is not nearly full enough in the sense I'm more interested in thickness and fullness and types of metaphors about um, ways in which we, we talk about and try and add a measure of analysis to things that are very difficult to do, which are largely qualitative art forms in a certain mm -hmm. way. I think there's an, there's a lot to be said for science and technology at the same time. I think um, some of the largely human questions, the eternal questions are things that are more about circular rhythms of life, um, the seasons changing, uh, the change in a person's life from youth to middle age, adolescence to old age and having a type of hopefully social system in place that can help to deal and create a full circular type of um, uh, just kind of experience of life, something like mm -hmm. a flower opening. I'm really suspicious of uh, metaphors of progress, of linearity, about moving in a singular path, kind of going forward into unknown territories and those things. I think they are shot through with all kinds of problems in regards to our relationship to uh, self and other, and especially, you know, politically, you know, things like colonialism and um, just the terrible influence of science historically, you know, in the 20th century, I tend to be somebody who looks at the, uh, the kind of ways in which science has been conceived and the kind of ways of talking about it, the discourses, especially in France. That's my area of focus. And so I've, I've always been interested in mystical thinkers and thinkers who really kind of cut science down to size a little bit by saying science can do a lot. Science can actually help us to um, really make enormous and important and necessary uh, improvements in our life. And that's the whole promise of the enlightenment within Western thought. But at the same time, um, enlightenment can come full circle and actually be very um, destructive. Um, if you look at some of the German thinkers you know, there's the dialectic uh, of enlightenment, which talks about this thing, same thing about, a, I guess we could say well-meaning idea, which is the enlightenment, eventually becomes something that leads to, um, you know, like the atomic bomb and, you know, concentration camps and the really efficient way of exterminating, killing people um, through scientific technological means. Mm -hmm. So that's something we have to be on guard against. And I don't know that we can fully be on guard against that unless we give ourselves over to the other half of our existence, which is more what you might call some thinkers that I study, some you know type of writers, some artists, whatever you want to call them, um, which tend to be categorized as mystical or intuitive um, thinkers, which are kind of looking for ways in which you um, avail yourself to the cycles of life in which you allow the flows of affect, you know, which is uh, kind of a word for emotion, but something that is um, in a lot of ways uh, electrical or something that goes between people and that helps us to get outside of ourselves. I think if we continue with the five pillars, one of the real dangers of Western thought in my experience and in my opinion is the fact that we tend to be highly focused on interiority and thinking about my problems and my things and my 
um, security, and I certainly am victim to a lot of that type of stuff. But like you said, in regards to the Peace Corps, I've always been somebody who wanted to get as much experience as possible. If you look at the idea of the model of the citizen scientist, somebody who goes mm -hmm. out and tries to collect data and tries to, um, in some ways, um, shock the system, do a little bit of violence to the system, as you would say in French, kind of um, just as you with exercising, you know, pushing your limits, trying to find ways in which you experience things and you allow the body to be in some ways a gauge for how that is interpreted through fatigue, through joy, through bliss, through endorphins, through all the things you can kind of approach through a number of, of ways so that it's not kind of falling into this relatively static idea of not doing much with the body and then thinking of the mind as almost being something that's sloshing around in a jar and mm -hmm. that is disconnected from the world and is kind of constantly in this this very fraught relationship to other in which we're always thinking about the world is there to cancel out my uniqueness and to destroy me and send me to eternal darkness or to heaven or whatever it is we do. I think those metaphors and those ideas, and I don't mean to critique them in any way, they're certainly valuable, but I think they need to be fleshed out and made really mm -hmm. full and thick. And to use anthropological language, there's a certain thickness of life that I think is oftentimes missing in regards to, um, uh, ideational types of mm -hmm. form, you know, ideas, mm -hmm. things that aren't um, located in a specific moment in time. So if an idea is important, it should be connected to a number of ways in which it's been put into practice. And it's been either shown to be very useful or maybe dubious or maybe not quite appropriate for that moment or that time. And so those are the ways in which I think that um, health can be thought of more through a type of thick uh, thickness or a type of fullness or a type of complexity or a type of multidimensional quality that in a lot of ways helps to frustrate or decenter or kind of destabilize what I think is the real danger in Western thought, which is to think we're always going into some new linear path and progress is a really, I, I think progress is way, way overstated. I think that we can get way ahead of ourselves in regards to progress. Yes, technology mm -hmm. does improve the possibilities for our lives, but at the same time, it brings new challenges that if they're not met with a fully functioning human embodied um, uh, person and community, right? It's mm -hmm. not the, it's the person in relationship to community, then you are going to have just as many problems and even more probably overwhelming types of problems that you're not going to be able to deal with. And your technological tools are going to be largely inefficient and mm -hmm. um, really just, I mean, you've gained the, you know, I mean, you've really lost everything by gaining this type of technological um, uh, superiority. I have a question for you actually about along these lines. So, you know, like in the foot nerd program or in, if you're at all interested in the science of health at all. So there's a ton of books on, let's just stick with sleep right now. Um, the science of sleeping, right? So uh, the, the simplistic idea is that we need probably need more sleep or we delve into the science of sleep and there every possible uh, data set that you could uncover is probably recorded and uh, written about and it's like all the rage to talk about and to unpack the science of sleep. So if you're talking about the thickness or the fullness of what it means to approach sleep in a different way, like how would you how would you address that? You know? Well, I think sleep kind of functions as in a lot of ways, like if you look at the circular quality, which I think is another way of kind of um, helping us to not get stuck in linear thinking. I'm not saying that we shouldn't set goals for ourselves and try and travel a certain, you know, create metaphors of travel and journey. I think that's one of the foundations for literature, you know. And some people joke that there's only two stories, you know, a, a new person comes to town or, you know, someone goes on a journey. Right. Uh, and the, both of those, you introduce newness into what is otherwise, you know, kind of a, a homeostatic uh, uh, situation. So in regards to sleep, I think that's what it does is that it, it introduces a necessary counterbalance to our tendency to always be thinking about working and always be thinking about thinking and always be thinking about doing and always be doing about, you know, these types of things in which we get so fast, we get moving and there's really no way of balancing that out without a really robust practice of sleep. And I think a robust practice of sleep, like the Footner program says, is limiting screen time. And not only that, but you know, there's so many people out there. I'm interested in sleep, especially in regards to performance, uh, athletes. I'm, I'm fascinated about athletes in which you have 
you know, this, uh, the game theory type of model, which was introduced in a podcast I really liked. Um, really thinking about the ways in which we're playing a game in life. And when you play a game, you need time to rest and relax. Otherwise, you're not going to win. You're next. You're not going to perform at all. You're not going to enjoy your performance. And you're certainly not going to be successful and do the types of things that you like. So without that really enormous um, counterbalance of sleep in our life, we don't have much of a hope of kind of um, being fully in the game and kind of thinking about the ways in which we create incentives in our life. And so sleep is allowing us to be fully rested. So when I wake up in the morning, I like to be super full of energy. I'm grown increasingly intolerant of being um, tired at any point throughout the day. And at the same time in the evening, um, I find myself um, moving across the country and starting a new job as I did three years ago, coming from California, moving to Alabama, which is a small state in the south of the US. Um, very different. Uh, environment, very different university, very different town, very different everything. So took a lot of practice. I, you know, to speak personally, that was a moment in which I, I tended to work too much and think too much. And so it was hard to set that um, kind of line in the evening in which, okay, I'm going to turn it all off because, I mean, I think the mind, I think my mind can kind of get away with uh, duping myself and I think, okay, I'll stop here. But really it has to be a kind of, um, joyful lingering or tarrying or kind of slowly going into sleep where you slowly start to wind down and you shake the day off and you allow yourself to move into the soft animal animal of the body and you allow yourself to become someone who not only begrudgingly accepts sleep as I have many friends who do and I kind of say well how does that work for you you know what is it that you're so interested in doing all the time I mean days are long you know I come from a tradition of thought you know if you look at Charles Baudelaire or somebody like this the great you know, evil in life is, is ennui. It's like this metaphysical boredom, you know, how do we spend our days when in fact, many of uh, us privileged Westerners, I speak personally, but um, others who would identify with that. Um, how do we find ways of getting through the day um, when we're not forced to labor a whole heck of a lot in the fields, mm -hmm. like many people are today, like many people are in, in many different places, both here in the U.S., everywhere, you know, and around the world. And we're involved in these types of relationships through the supply chains that we kind of utilize through the way in which the world is constructed nowadays. You know, you can't turn on the water faucet or the light, you know, the lights without being uh, really morally implicated in a very complex system of relations. So mm -hmm. in some ways, slowing down and re recognizing that I may not be able to change the world in the ways that I think would be good. And maybe I don't even know, probably, I mean, a lot of times my ideas aren't very useful for changing the world, but at the same time I can slow down and I can kind of sink back into what I would call largely the human condition, which is one that is shared across a multiplicity of living arrangements, which is the fact that you sleep, which is the fact that you get up, which is the fact, the fact that you allow yourself at the end of the day to really have gratitude in the morning to get up and slowly kind of enter the day as much as possible. I'm not saying everybody is involved around the world, but I have lived in places, you know, where it's very different and we're not in a place where you wake up and jump on the computer or jump up and start doing stuff. When you live in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa where I was at, um, it's very, very hot, you know, and so you, for the most, you, you're pacing yourself because you don't have the technological accoutrements to help to, render your life and make it so fluid and so really um, possible to spend all this time constantly thinking and, you know, doing and achieving, you know, you're not doing a lot of that. You're subsisting, you know, in a, in a very, and there's plenty of stuff I could say about this. And I hope to about some of the books and some of the ideas, which I think are really useful um, for others, which have been, have marked my life. And I think are, are awesome. And like I said before, that's what I, I'm, I'm, I like the idea of a type of public intellectual to use Gramsci's term. Um, somebody who uh, I'm a first generation uh, college student, so I kind of come from two different worlds, trying to explain some of the complexity and why I live my life the way I do and why the heck I should get a PhD. I've never been somebody who's, who's done things because I think, well, I'm going to get this because I want to get that. I didn't get a PhD to get a job, but I just kind of followed one step after the other, and I would have never thought I'd end up working as a college profess professor, but it's kind of following those things and that is, I think, the recipe for life. And I think it's the recipe for a daily form of um, fulfilling existence is that mm -hmm. you create those, those things in which you fully accept that and relish it and enjoy it and, and sink into the delicious quality of sleep. And also that moment before when you're allowing yourself to slow down 
and create incentives for being a human again, as opposed to a mind in a jar, which is a mm -hmm. privileged Western type of form of existence, as I would say, right? Mm -hmm. As somebody who, who knows that as an intellectual. Uh, Wait, what do you mean by mind in a jar? As I mentioned earlier, somebody who, who tends to not have to labor, who doesn't have to either, um, you know. Labor physically? Labor physically, be exploited, be forced to do jobs that they don't want to do. do. Um, you know, I'm, I'm saying everybody has its, I mean, I, I don't always love my job or love the way that I do it, but I, am, I have an enormous uh, privilege in the, the, the potential to kind of uh, change the daily structure of my life and change what I do in regards to what I teach and how I kind of introduce new ideas. So I have that at the same time, but I can also fall into what I feel in the university system is this, um, what's oftentimes used as this justification for always being in the ivory tower position of thinking and kind of writing and being this scholar removed from society in the ivory tower. Um, it's, I think, a very dangerous type of uh, path to go down. And oftentimes you talk about it's, it's like an Aristotelian life of the mind, which I think is way overstated because um, at the same time, you have to balance out the life of the mind with the life of the body. And if you do that, I think then you earn your sleep. I think if one mm -hmm. of the books said that along those lines, I mean, sleep is something that you earn. I mean, it's something if you I know a lot of people, I know a lot of people personally who aren't intellectuals. I know a lot of people who have a problem doing the simple human embodied things like waking up in the morning without significant chemical intervention. I'm not against coffee. I'm not against these types of things, but at the same time, as the footner program would say, be careful with those things. Be careful with the way you think about addictions. Mm -hmm. Same thing about going to bed at night. How can you shut off the mind? How can you slow the body down? How can you get into that space of necessary sleep without, mm -hmm. you know, having to use a lot of interventions, which mm -hmm. are not going to be good in the long run? You know, and if you're if you're just listening to something like this for the first time, when when we talk about earning sleep and physicality, it's it's becoming a person, a, a human like Matthew is talking about is we move our bodies more than we're actually static and sedentary. So one of the major things that we do um, is we try to calculate how much we actually sit and we usually fool ourselves um, recognizing only certain aspects of sitting and not calculating the time that we're in a car or um, sitting on, at the dinner table or in a restaurant or something. So becoming somebody who earns your sleep, um, it means that you are physically and mentally tired when you go to bed and sleep comes more easily. We tend to not have to need um, Ambien or whatever, or cannabis or whatever it is that you use to put yourself to sleep and put your mind to sleep when your body is sufficiently exercised through and not at the gym necessarily, but just by moving on a daily basis more than your sedentary um, is, is what we're talking about. So that seems like a good segue into moving. You want to give us a little bit of background about your, maybe your background. Oh, I would, what I would love to talk to you about is like a, a little bit of your history with, um, what it meant to be a mover when you were younger and what it means to be a mover now and, you know, towards the middle of your life. Yeah, I mean, I've always enjoyed sports and I've always played sports from when I was a young age. I was one of the things I was thankful to be able to do to kind of be, as you say, in the U.S., a student athlete, because I certainly would have been a student who would have completed college and certainly wouldn't have got on to university without having those incentives to be in the school experience. I grew up in the country. I grew up with uh, my parents are farmers. So um, it was kind of a real move to go to school. You know, it was 15 minutes in the car, but, you know, it was going outside of the, the, the environment once you grow up, which is largely quiet and, you know, a lot, a lot of TV and certainly no internet back then. And um, doing that and kind of being in town and playing sports and all that type of stuff, um, gave me, and at school as well, I, I always thought of school as not simply a place where you do homework. In fact, I always thought that it was ridiculous that we had to do homework as much time as we spent in school. I always kind of laugh now because I, as a young child, it occurred to me like, well, why do we have to do work at home and we spend, I don't know, five, six, seven hours, whatever it was we spent in school because you'd have to take the bus and you have to get up in the morning. You have to make a pretty significant trip in there and then you have to be away and I appreciate that. I like that because I like being with my friends and I like playing on recess and I liked, you know, I wasn't for the most part a negative experience at all. And I didn't find school to be super difficult. Um, 
it wasn't something where I defined myself as being, you know, smart, whatever. I was lucky to have parents who, you know, provided a space in which I could, you know, get enough sleep and enough nutrition and those types of things. And I know that's not the case for everybody. And so school came easy to me, but because of those things, it was something that I was able to think of school as not simply, oh God, I got to pass this homework class. So many kids nowadays, they're, you know, if they don't get into the right preschool, then their parents' master plan is sending them to Princeton or what some other Ivy League school is foiled. And they have to have 18 extracurricular activities, none of which they're particularly thrilled about. I never had any of that type of pressure. And so I'm very thankful for it. And so I kind of developed this organic form of thought where going to school is about moving through time and space, you know, because you had to get up in the morning and wait. And it was, I grew up in California, but it's cold in the Central Valley. So you're waiting out for the bus at, you know, seven in the morning and it's, there's ice on the puddles and stuff in the winter. And you know, I would go in there and to town and then you'd have practice after school as I got older and I was just playing sports. And like, that's why another way of thinking about it's, it's a complex, uh, fully nuanced, uh, just a, a very different, you know, the words I would use now from anthropological language, there's a thickness to it. I can think about it now and it's many, many years ago and I'm super far away from it, but I can call it up right now mm -hmm. because I lived it rather fully, I would say. And those memories are the memories that endure. Um, and that is something that has always been part and parcel of how I approach school because people would think now, well, you're a professor, whatever this, you go, you get a PhD, all that type of stuff. But it was really just a daily practice of attending to how I constructed my life. And as I went through my life, I excelled at sports and I played college. I played baseball in college and, you know, I played baseball, basketball in high school. And so I was, I enjoyed that a lot. At the same time, some of the books like Katie Bowman's book on, you know, overtraining or the ways in which uh, movement um, oftentimes is subsumed in um, a kind of category, a very narrow category of practice or like training or something like that, mm -hmm. whether we go to the gym or whether we go to practice and do some of that type of stuff. I certainly experienced that as I got further along and found it to be a little bit more difficult to live a life that's fully uh, rewarding. And I thought allowed me the necessary downtime to sleep well, but also to you know experience my social life and um, allow myself to continue to, to grow as an individual, you know, like mm -hmm. to many, many parts. That's why I guard my time. That's why I sleep a lot because I think I have a lot of stuff to do each day, but at the same time, it's fairly, modest about the movement because uh, I don't know if, if our listeners know, but we don't have a car. So that's one of the things we decided to uh, get rid of when we moved to France over a decade ago. We got rid of the car just because 13 years ago, to be specific. Yeah. <laughs> and then we uh, over there, you know, there was a lot of things we liked the city, the older cities, centers you can kind of get around more easily the focus on public transportation something that hasn't always been the case here in the u.s but we've committed to that because it's a way of moving through the world i think in a more deliberate sense as opposed to getting into what i fall victim to is like going to the gym and doing a bunch of stuff because it feels good to counterbalance that all the thinking and the the you know the the emails and the paperwork it's not even like i'm sitting there like you know coming up with big ideas or solving the world's problems. I'm mainly just sending emails and filling out, you know, freaking paperwork. Most of my job, you know, it's like, and I don't say that in any cynical way. I think that's just the modern bureaucratic nature of life in a large yeah. sense. And so to fight against that and kind of accept that because it yields significant benefits, at least currently I accept it. Um, I think those are some of the ways I think that movement is a multifaceted thing. It's not just going to the gym. It's certainly playing sports. I tend to be more into tennis now. Um, and I've gotten back into doing more weight training and more stuff just in a sense where I kind of got burnt down on that when I was younger and the sports that I played basketball and baseball, I don't tend to play them as much anymore. So it's kind of a transition of sorts. And I've been discovering other things I've rode and, um, in the past in college, mm -hmm. I wrote some as well and as a master's student. And so I've done a lot of things that have been a lot of fun and have allowed me to kind of keep unfolding as an individual and trying new things. And so there's a lot of play involved with that. I really like um, coordination games. I really like, I'm not big into endurance or running unless it's about having fun and chasing after a ball or trying to, I don't know, I don't achieve something, but I'm not 
super big into that type of stuff. I like it to have a game theory where you create incentives that are organic and it's not about disciplining yourself into doing things. And at the same time, the way I incentivize, and I think we incentivize ourselves without the car is like, well, we walk to get the groceries, we walk to do things, we walk just in general because um, it allows us to stay fit. And that also allows me to clear my mind and actually to be in the world. If you look at the book, The New Old Way, which is part of the Foot Nerd program, it's about the relationship to habitat. And that's super big within the mystical tradition, you know, the ways in which we largely look beyond the world. We just, um, in a lot of sense, cancel out everything that isn't immediately useful to us. I think that's mm -hmm. the analytical mind. I think that's the real danger, as I said. If you look at uh, Henri Bergson's uh, thought, um, a big type of uh, scientist in, you know, turn of the century France. Uh, and he's basically saying that um, we need to complement that analytical quality and not create an enemy out of it by thinking, oh, I'm always just, you, you need that in order to stay alive. You need that to be in the world. You need to that. And now, not so much as a hunter-gatherer sense, but if you go in the world, and I think that's one of the things, if you ride public transportation, if you go and you walk through a city, you have to be more awake to things, mm -hmm. even if you drive your car, you know, but in large ways, we can be on autopilot in certain ways, but I like being in a mm -hmm. fully embodied sense where I'm understanding those things and I'm kind of treating the world as something that deserves respect and that I have mm -hmm. to honor. But in the same ways, I sometimes think about when we lived in Santa Cruz in the West Coast or like in mm -hmm. Long Beach in the South, I had a lot of surfer friends, um, not a big surfer myself, but if you go out onto a wave and you kind of, you feel the immense you know, power of the ocean and there's a reverence for it. And I like talking to surfer friends who talk about that. And I think that's a great metaphor as well for thinking about life is you need to respect life and be in a position also where life can crush you and kind of really do damage to you. You need to do violence to yourself, but at the same time in a very organic, slowly unfolding way. And so yeah, give an we, example of that because people won't no, might not understand what you mean when you say like do violence to yourself, like like well, that's a, why I use like the surfing metaphor, um, because it's like, if you like to surf, if you like the ocean, it's a very great experience. You know, it's be out there and to do stuff. And, you know, if you're, I mean, it's a very invigorating experience. If you're in the ocean in California where it's cold and you wear a wetsuit, oftentimes, you know, it's, it's different. It's, it's just a very, you know, powerful thing. And at the same time, if you go out, not even on a super big way, but you can't mess around because you could get mm -hmm. hurt. And especially when you start to go to the places where the waves are really breaking. And uh, that's why I mentioned some of my better surfing friends, you know, they, they'll talk about that. And, you know, they'll talk about how they negotiate that and having just a small taste of that. And if you go out on the ocean at all, you feel that. And mm -hmm. I think that gives us a more um, useful way of relating to the massive cosmic energies, whatever we mm -hmm. call the world. Right. But the yeah. world usually is like, well, I'm walking down a sidewalk and paved and talking and all these things that like Katie Bowman would talk about the way in which habitat where Frank Forenjic, I guess, would say mm -hmm. habitat it tends to be paved over. We lose our relationship to its full complexity. Mm -hmm. And I think without getting into overly analytical forms, it's just like if you've ever been on a, a wave or something like that, you have to honor that. And you, but you, why would you do that? You don't do that because it's like, well. I want to go out and scare myself. Maybe you do to a certain, because it's fun. It's fun to be in the ocean. It's fun to ride a wave. It's fun to mm -hmm. do that type of stuff. And it's a good example of how I think you incentivize your life to that game theory model. And in, that, in so doing, you create a more, um, I think, you know, I don't like to use the word honest, but, you know, like more, I think, useful way of being mm -hmm. in relationship to the world. So you get the necessary feedback that you need as opposed to getting a lot of feedback that might not be as useful for your ultimate happiness or health. Yeah, so like if you were to, well, so um, personally I've had like a lot of joint pain and some dealing with some knee injury. And so just taking up tennis recently, tell me if this is another example of like, like kind of like doing violence, like testing yourself almost beyond like what you think might be safe. So like I played, tennis for two hours yesterday with a, a I'm, I'm working on a old knee injury that I'm trying to strengthen. And I was afraid to play because the knee isn't like perfect. So I played for two hours and I came home and I was, I got some good information, some good data and some good feedback. And my, my first instinct was like, I shouldn't have done that that much. But I think like you're talking about like maybe, um, like doing that kind of like violence to yourself, like kind of testing yourself in a way that you might, that might feel a little bit dangerous, but you get good feedback and then you can make adjustments. Like Nick talks about this a lot um, about injuries. Like you, you can't go, I have tried to go my whole life 
for the last 15 years without injuring myself. And I have missed out on the joy of playing like Matthew's talking about. And so more recently, I'm actually working through some of the pain in different ways and testing myself um, in bigger, in even bigger ways. So would you say like, that's an idea, that's like another idea of like doing like violence to yourself where like you almost put yeah. a little more pressure on yourself than you would normally be comfortable with? Yeah, and no, I'm really oftentimes borrowing ideas and, you know, thought structures. One of the things being mainly uh, uh, somebody, a user, and you, if you want to say a scholar of, of Italian and, and French is that I, I think when you learn other languages, you really enter into a deep relationship to how these uh, thought patterns are mapped onto the world. So we say things, you know, based on what we call them. And sometimes we have more vocabulary available for certain uh, languages because they live in a different relationship to their habitat. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the things that so oftentimes I'm using the French expression to, to do violence to yourself, which in English doesn't translate super well, but I think because of the awkwardness of it, I'm big into translation, something mm -hmm. I like to do. I like to translate. In fact, I do translate. I, I have the privilege of working with really compelling philosophers in the contemporary moment thinking about the nature of democracy and about public happiness. And I hope to talk about that in future episodes. Um, because I think when you take other ideas, when you really force yourself to go beyond um, your linguistic parameters, mm -hmm. so it's not just about jumping in the ocean or doing stuff. I mean, you have to approach these things in a way where violence tends to think, well, good Lord, you're doing too much. Maybe, but the French expression is more about forcing yourself. Like, and the violence that you know that is in the French expression allows you to think about that it is something that it's embodied. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's an embodied experience. It's not just like, well, I do. I'm uncomfortable about this. It is something that is fairly difficult that you probably have to, you know, move your body to do and and really compel yourself to do these types mm -hmm. of metaphors. The way that we structure our language in order to, I think, give us useful feedback for how we're um, kind of pushing the limits because yeah as Nick had said about like the nature of injuries as being a very good feedback I had an injury playing tennis recently and it really changed my perspective it was frustrating and it was difficult to think about and it's difficult to experience on a daily level on a very mm -hmm. slow daily recuperative level um, but I think that is also something that is really useful because if you are not in some ways pushing your limits and i don't you know like you can't give advice i can't tell you well go hurt yourself or go right. do this or go push yourself to the limit i mean you have to in a lot of ways be involved in a mimetic relationship to, I'm, I'm big about mimesis as well not so not so much always saying well the nature of this in order to be happier to be this is to understand this and that i don't think it's that's very useful i don't think how that's the way the world works you know i think mm -hmm. that's the way that the western tradition of thought works and i think its claims are way overstated, okay? So I think largely you don't have to be an intellectual and certainly can hinder you. You know, there are positive ways of using ideas. There are also negative ways and there's a certain freshness and vitality to life. I'm really big into looking at uh, societies that don't have, you know, uh, written or writing as a technology, you know, oral societies in that sense. And I just love the way that they uh, approach the world in such a very different type of uh, relationship. So especially in France, especially as uh, the French language is being basically forced upon a lot of peasants and things like that. I, that's something I, I like to read about and research and kind of also at the same time think about my own life. And I think that's where I've always been interested in people who don't have a, a, a literary structure or uh, overly cumbersome intellectual structure, which I think we do no matter if you're in the university or whatever, you have nothing but ideas on the internet. That's what the internet is. It's ideas and ideas and people emoting about ideas mm -hmm. and things like that. And I don't mean to trash it and stuff like that, but um, it's something that really drowns us and it's super hard to get away from. Mm -hmm. So I think the way that you can, the way that I try and um, counterbalance that is to think about ways of, uh, you know, creating other uh, relationships to uh, experience so that there's you're, you're a fully functioning somebody who's able to test yourself and say well maybe i want to learn this new language or maybe i want to learn this new sport well my god where do i find the time and where do i find the the sleep the amount of time to sleep and the amount of time to um, adjust to the other commitments i've made in my life paying my mortgage or raising my kids or thinking about those things do you allow enough space in your life for you to do violence to the categories of who it is you you want to be as a fully functioning human. 
Mm -hmm. I think it's easy to get hemmed in and to think, well, I would love to do that. And I want to do that. And it's on my bucket list. I think that bucket list thing is like, you know, whatever it's like, do it now. Like, and I think there's a certain immediacy, maybe, maybe because of all the coronavirus uh, restrictions and stuff where people seem to be in some ways emerging from some of the things, at least here in the U S I don't know. I mean, I know that it's, it's a complex situation, other places around the world, but um, I think just in the, the, the space this year, uh, it seems like, and from what I read in some ways, people are starting to say like, okay, the bucket list need, needs to be something I do now, you know, it needs yeah. to be, uh, I need to create a horizon of possibility for myself. And when you do that, then you have a chance for happiness and health to be experiences that you regularly partake in. I, that's my claim. Yeah. My suggestion, right? If it's not a thesis, <laughs> like a suggestion and based on some of my experience. Yeah. Well, I think I would, I kind of want to unpack the public happiness because it has a lot to do with um, movement and like what in the book, New Old Way, we've, we've been, Matthew and I have been really hooked on the theme of, of vigility, which I never really understood. I never actually even really heard that word before I started reading this book about um, the idea that the, before the world was sort of paved over or the industrial world, Came about we had a lot of room to walk to move through the world for long long stretches um and so when i read the chapter on agility it became very i became very aware of my surroundings and how far and how um closed in i felt physically so uh, if i had anger to express i i had to there was no place to really like scream or like throw a ball or like or, or run for miles, like Forrest Gump or whatever. So without running into a freeway or, or some, or traffic jam or, or whatever. So um, it we would, could go right into public happiness and what it means to be able to move freely in the world. And it's a good time for it, even though we won't get to, we'll do the other five pillars in subsequent episodes. Maybe we could just unpack a little bit because this is a good time. We just recently, um, came from Mobile, Alabama to Tampa, Florida for the summer. And we visited here about a month and a half ago. When we did so, we recognized we got on the river walk and we just started walking and there was like nothing in our way. We could just walk for like, I don't know, four miles. We kind of forgot where we were, what we were doing or where we were going or any time frame. We just went. Um, and now I know that like people who live in forests and go hiking and stuff, that that's one thing, but to walk out your door of where you live and just go without any preparation is something different. So um, the being in the world with people on boats, um, walking around in the park, there's tons of spaces where you can, there's like playgrounds everywhere and children playing and people moving together and weddings out in the open. And there was a, a, an overwhelming feeling of like, oh, this is an aspect of human fragility that I think in a modern sense, but I think for Frank Gorenchich is talking about in a new old way, right? Because if you think about it in like the paleo or whatever, or back when hunter gatherers, well, we don't, we don't live in that environment. We live in cities and we live in populated areas. So maybe we can just talk about agility and public happiness and we'll um, take carry on in other episodes. Yeah, I'm, these are big questions. So like we talked about not having a car, I think that's one of the reasons why you're forced to move about the world in a number of ways. The car just takes away, it becomes a totalizing type of um, uh, logic and technology in my life in that sense is that you start to make decisions based on what you can do in a car. And then next thing you know, living in places like LA or things like that, where you commute and you spend all your time driving around or other places as well, but like, it's a common type of practice. And it's one that I have never really been interested in. And so it's good that I, I haven't done that, but at the same time, I've, I've certainly used a car plenty of my life and kind of moving away from that and, and looking at the ways, first of all, in which you're forced to be creative and also um, interested in problem solving about moving about um, spaces, especially city spaces. You know, I like the city. I like to think about the city and the relationship to um, the countryside, you know, which is a very rich, um, complex, uh, uh, difficult relationship in a lot of ways in regards to 
um, where riches are, where capital accumulates, where people in general are able to secure a certain privilege and comfort, and then other ways in which um, it's not always as easy as that. Oftentimes there's better ways of living outside of a city. And, you know, obviously I think it's, it's a nice way of moving about as much as possible. Just like I mentioned, going to other places and being from the countryside growing up and living in cities a lot in my life and uh, different types of cities. So I like to move around in space and I think not having a car compels you to do that. And the other thing that it does is it forces you to be in public in relationship to others. And I think that as I've said, is I think one of the crucial elements about modern happiness. One of the philosophers that I work with, and her book is going to be available for the first time in English uh, at the end of August. And I, I translated it, and um, it basically makes the claim. I think we can maybe talk about it in future episodes because there's a lot to unpack there. But it makes the claim that you cannot really experience happiness unless it is a collective phenomenon. You know, it's something happiness is experienced in public with others or it's not happiness. And so it might be a little bit polemical. It might be a little bit heavy handed, but I think there's a lot to it. The fact that the modern, as I've said before, the modern focus on interiority, my psychology, my problems, myself, I am, I want, I am not, that type of uh, just linguistic way in which we approach the world and create a hostile relationship um, to it. Oftentimes, you know, the world is there to you know, frustrate me or whether it's a traffic jam or, you know, somebody, you know, not making my coffee fast enough at Starbucks or whatever it is, that type of way of thinking about the world is, is a very dangerous one and a way of kind of maybe complicating that relationship is to kind of be in the world in a different way, kind of move mm -hmm. through it in a, a way that allows you to get outside of yourself. And I think that's as simple as going to a park and maybe seeing others around you. And that's what we've experienced. We've really enjoyed about Tampa. That's why we decided to be here over the summer. Um, like like well, I said, seen... what I was gonna, what I just wanted to say is that like, the thing that is, is coming up right now is that like how it can be more simple than we make it out to be. So like we would talk, we started in the beginning about like, what it means to dig into the five pillars of health and like really study and then like really create uh, habits around being healthier with sleep and movement, et cetera, et cetera. But like when you talk about public happiness in this way, um, all you have to do to experience. So, so you were talking about like experiencing the world and interiority, like how we have this customized personal world. Like everybody has their own personal playlist and we've experienced this. Everybody going by on a bike has their own playlist going on their bike, on their rollerblades. There's no common like radio station that everybody has to listen um, to the same music at once or, or watch the same, same television show. So that, but in order to change that, it doesn't need to necessarily, a step in the right direction rather is not necessarily to like, study anything or go to therapy or I'm not saying that's not helpful but to maybe just step outside for a day like when we were younger we used to do this thing called urban hiking where we would just put our backpacks on have a little cash in our backpack and then just take the city and see where take the day and see where it took us and then just like being out in the world and seeing people and interacting spontaneously with other people it it changes you even just after one day of just being in the world, not necessarily with anything to do or um, any place to go or any event to be at, just the actual exercise of going into the public world. What do you think yeah, about that? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the idea. And the problem, the challenge is that the claim of, uh, this philosopher Adriana Cavarero is that it's not so easy to find a public, right? That's the idea. In today's world, we tend to be atomized individuals, you know, like little atoms. We're separated from each other, removed from a type of common space. We tend to be in our cars. We tend to be in our cubicles. We tend to be in our houses, in the suburbs, um, or in our apartments or whatever it is. We don't have maybe a robust practice of being in commons you know, which is a big aspect of modern social thought, thinking about ways of simply creating ways of being together in which in theory, everyone is invited. Now that's in theory, right? Certainly, usually they tend to be commodified or they tend to be policed. 
so that you have to have a certain appearance or you have to have a certain income or you have to have a certain performative capacity. That means that you look like you are allowed to be there. Right. And these are big questions nowadays, like how um, we think about, you know, the city and whether it's safe and how we think about police's forces and how we think about our own idea of being in the city. But I think city planners more and more are thinking about the need for people to get outside of our tendency to be indoors all the time. I and mean, I think if you look at just I think maybe Frank, Frank Forenchich talks about or something, we spend 94% or 90 something percent of our time indoors. It's just so hard to be outside unless you are somebody who has a job out there, you know, and as being somebody who, as I said, sends a lot of emails and does a lot of paperwork and stuff like that. I'm always looking for opportunities to be outside in order to balance out this other type of thing. First of all, because it makes me happy, but also because it allows me to get away and to create some possibility of relating to others. Because I think in general, one of the larger tendencies of modern society is the ability, is the inability to create connections between generations. That's something that I feel I've noticed in regards to my family and my life, where you get a job and you move away, you live far away from your parents or from your grandparents or from the people who in general would be considered your elders who will help you deal with some of the things in life, hopefully, right? It's not always easy to occupy that position of being an elder, but in general, a lot of time is spent just being around people that are not like you. And that's where I mentioned the word mimesis, which is just to mimic. It's really just to look at and learn based on the way that somebody is moving, holding themselves. They're commuting, c communicating a whole hell of a lot. And they're doing it without language. And they're doing it oftentimes across different cultures. Although, of course, we have to be careful about interpreting and things always in the same way. But in general, there are ways of learning which don't have to be filtered so much through the prism of language, which tends to crush our intuitive appreciation of the world, right? Mm -hmm. It tends to filter it through a whole ways. Did I experience that right? Do you, should I do this? Should I move my foot that way? Should I eat four grapes as a, is, you know, drinking coffee bad for you Is alcohol that there's a lot of questions that frankly, it depends, you know, what do you want out of life? Where do you live? How are you living that type of stuff? Whereas looking at somebody doing things, whether you're learning to hit a tennis forehand properly, or you're learning to deal with the sadness of losing somebody, you know, in your life, you know, somebody close to you or a, a pet or whatever it is, you see people rise to the occasion and do things that you might not have expected from them based on your linguistic relationship to them. And so that's what I feel like a way of learning is by being in commons, being around other people. But that is very difficult to do because frankly, most of our lives now tend to be um, largely removed from other people. And I think nowadays there's more of an emphasis in many cities to say, like, we need public parks, we need green spaces, we need these types of things. We need ways in which everybody's invited to be there and it's not just having a certain income that allows you to go there. It's a way of being able to kind of uh, learn from others and be around others and experience uh, happiness um, with a public in what Hannah Arendt, who is the philosopher that uh, Adriana Cavarero works on and who I really like as well, talks about as a, a public space of appearance, a way in which you can appear to others, almost as if you're staging the drama of human life or the uh, comedy of human life, whatever it is. I don't mm -hmm. want, mean to for example, generic so is, of, of categories, but you're kind of performing there. Yeah, I was just going to say that that um, when we're on the river walk and all those boats go by that are like thatch hut boats and kettle boats and people are on there celebrating. We were just talking about an example of this is that if you were walking down that river walk, um, and people are listening to music and dancing and interacting with the people who are walking along the shoreline. And we were talking about if you took away all the people on the shoreline, there would be no reason to go out on that boat. Like really, it, it wouldn't, it, that is like, unless you were going fishing and you wanted it quiet, but in that those public spaces, that is like a public space of interaction. And when you throw your hands up in a whoop whoop, and somebody does it on the boat that that creates a whole level of energy that is an example of the public happiness i think that you're talking about right 
Yeah, I think it's a fairly straightforward embodied phenomenon. I don't think it just, when you try and talk about it, you're trying to evoke something that's not here. Whereas if the proof is in the pudding, you know, it's, it's something that you experience and you understand. And I think that's one of the big claims is that if we focus too much, which we tend to do, which is one of the claims of Adriana Cavarero is that we tend to fall into the trap in which we allow ourselves to be in some ways pathologized, you know, made to be uh, lacking, made to be something. It's like, why can't I find happiness? Why am I always asking myself, am I happy? All that, that type of linguistic, you know, constant preoccupation with it and the idea of some interior space in which you can find it and kind of verify it and set a metric that allows you to constantly look at it almost as like your cell phone, your battery life or something, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's ultimately self-defeating. And it's not that you don't have a unique and, you know, highly individual experience of happiness. Of course you do, because you've only lived your life in the way you've done that. No one else has ever lived as you have lived. And right now, one second later, you're a completely more complex individual because you've spent just that atom of a second living and dwelling and experiencing all the past that you've, you've kind of worked through in regards to your joys, your difficulties, that type of stuff. That's the real idea of humans being these incredibly amazing, complex, fully unique individuals. So that's what is not at all eradicated. That's something that you bring to bear in that space of appearance. And then everybody by doing that creates this experience of excellence, according to Hannah Arendt's claim, which is that when you do that, you naturally kind of police yourself to a certain degree. If you want to use that term, I'm not necessarily saying that that's what she says, but you create a way in which you hold each other accountable might be a better way of saying it. Mm -hmm. which you don't have to worry about punishing people and ensuring compliance or, you know, surveilling them to make sure all this type of stuff. It's just like you were seeing other people and humans to a large degree want to um, reciprocate that type of admiration, that type of prestige, which is exchange, which seems to be an anthropological principle, you know, is that we need to uh, agree and uh, earn the recognition and respect and protection of others. And so mm -hmm. that space of appearance certainly has something to do about it, which is, you know, basically what I'm just calling being in a public place, you know, and you don't have mm -hmm. to go there and like be breakdancing or being awesome at Frisbee or something. You can just go there and sit there and play your part by sitting on the bench with dignity and mm -hmm. presence and maybe somebody comes up to you or a child or a dog or whatever, or you see something and suddenly you do something that you didn't plan or think, oh, I'm here because I'm an engineer or I'm here because I'm a whatever, a software technician or a professor of French, that type of stuff. You were there mm -hmm. playing your part, you know, just because you were there with your full heartedness. And I think that's the real um, bold claim. And I think the useful claim to try and help us to be in the world, because that's the initiative or that's the incentive right there is that if we get out of the world, we largely um, uh, kind of obviate, we kind of remove from our blocking our path, the, this preoccupation with individual happiness in which we're constantly, I think, terrorized by it, you know, like, oh my God, am I happy enough? Am I this or that type of thing? And I'm not saying that that's not a fairly normative thing and maybe even a largely human thing. I don't want to make any claims about that. I'm just saying that a lot of those things can be minimized in their effect right mm -hmm. so that you can create a more balanced fully human experience as i said a thick experience it doesn't mean that you don't have problems and insecurities and things like that and I, that's why i've said before just like riding public transportation and being in the world and also witnessing that and all and like mm -hmm. when you step into the world you realize okay the way you're dressed the way that you speak when you ride public transportation most people don't look like you you know at least in places i ride it you know, for the most part. So you have to think about, okay, what am I communicating now when mm -hmm. I'm not saying a word? What am I learning? How am I bringing myself, how am I bringing my presence there in a way that maybe people will look at me, oh, he's white, he's male, he's whatever, this type of stuff. And they make mm -hmm. assumptions, of course, that's what we do. But we can really complicate that and bring ourselves back to the human complexity and play and uncertainty and real aliveness and awake, being uh, awake to life by having a full sense of presence you know like you see that people who have presence for the for the most part right you see them as a great performer and they practice it right they practice that type of thing but i think they practice it through a fully embodied type of idea being fully in the moment like to be a great athlete or something like that or a great stage performer like you have to sleep and you have to be ready to be fully alive because the moment is immense for you to go out and do that when everybody is looking at you Right. And that is something that 
I think we all can aspire to and break down some of those specialized distinctions about he's talented, she's super intelligent. Yeah, in some ways we all have our gifts, but we don't, we need to avoid structuring the world based on these hierarchies because mm-hmm. I would claim they're based on privilege. Other people haven't had as much of that. Society doesn't do as good a job as it always needs to do in order to help um, give everybody a chance to play their part in mm-hmm. a fully functioning public, you know, and in here in the U.S. just personally, I mean, we waste too much money, if you want to look at it economically, on building prisons and incarcerating people. And I'm not even going to mention the moral, ethical dilemma of doing that type of mass incarceration, you know, but if you, whatever your perspective is, it's an enormous waste of our money. It's an enormous waste of things. We can do other stuff with that if we can help to structure our society in a way that allows more people to get a chance to play a part there. Now, these are big claims. I'm not saying that, that there's this utopic possibility to just go out and sit in a park bench, but you play a part. And those small, in seemingly, sometimes as I feel, insignificant moments and acts, they, they loom large. They have an enormous unseen effect. They ripple out into the world. And who knows, maybe they do help to create some type of systemic uh, bettering of society. But in any case, they help... You, you change yourself for the better, you know, you be the change that you want to see in the world, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. these types of popular uh, forms of wisdom, you know, if you can do that, then you can help to experience that help, that health, uh, that own sense of health, and then you're probably in a better position to help those that are around you, and, you know, and, and mm-hmm. as I would say, maybe people need you immediately, maybe you can't change the fact that we waste too much money on this, or I don't want us to spend money on that, or I think we should vote for this person and we should give more money to the environment, whatever it is you think is important, save the whales, that type of stuff, like go do it, you know, but do it out of a sense of joy. And so when you fully do it, you also have the time to be in the world because somebody may need your help right next to you. And it may be somebody that you wouldn't know that they need that specific type of help that only you can provide. And I don't even know what it is. Obviously you just have to be there to do mm-hmm. that. Is an ethical act, right? That is a way of being fully human. And that is a way of feeling like you have worth and you're needed in the world, which we all obviously deeply, I would say, desire, you know, a feeling of need, of purpose in our life. And I think those can be accomplished in small ways that might then slowly start to build momentum towards more fulfilling ways in regards to career and family and, you know, all mm-hmm. the other big, big questions in life. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that seems like a good place to wrap it up for today. Sounds good. Do you want to, well, hold on, but do you want to give any recommendation before we leave or any last moment goodbyes? <laughs> We're going to go uh, eat dinner, y'all. Yeah, no, I thank, thank you for the invitation. And um, I enjoy talking about these things. So, uh, if you want to talk about it more, you can you can contact me, or I kind of linger on the edges of the Foot Nerd um, program, and I really enjoy it and I appreciate it. So probably this is destined most likely for um, that audience. And if others happen to run into it, and hopefully in the future we'll talk more about some of these things. And if you have specific questions, because I go fast and kind of introduce a lot of stuff, and I feel like that's one of the things I've smuggled out a lot of ideas which I think are awesome and really great and I love to talk about them and so it's hard to squeeze them all into a relatively short format but um, I'm happy to kind of unpack some of those or just uh, talk about other stuff in the future so hopefully we have the opportunity to do more podcasts and uh, follow up in whatever ways are desired and uh, fun and useful. Yeah well we definitely will have more podcasts and if you have specific questions you want to ask or, or a topic you want to unpack a little bit more or any comments at all, you can just, I guess you'll leave a comment in the comment section because this is going to go up on YouTube channel. Um, and then if you have any questions about the Foot Nerd program, don't hesitate to get in touch with nerdhelperteam at gmail.com. And thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Okay, have thank some you. Dinner. Right. We're going to go barbecue now. Bye. Ciao.